Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkast, joined by my co-host, Justin Ritchie, and a very, very special correspondent. Our editor, Kevin, was able to make it to a really excellent conference on permaculture and has brought back some fantastic audio. Yeah, that's right, Seth. So today we are covering the Pacific Northwest Permaculture Convergence from the year 2012 with our correspondent, Kevin, who also does so much of the awesome editing on our interviews for our show. And so today we're going to pull together all of the hours and hours of audio that Kevin recorded at the conference, and he has turned those into three audio segments on various aspects of permaculture and the challenges on uh, the social aspects of permaculture and the built environment and how it deals with permaculture. So Kevin, tell us a little bit about the Pacific Northwest Permaculture Convergence and what it was like to be there with one of the largest permaculture conferences, if not the largest in North America. So the Convergence Conference was in October in the town of Port Townsend. And actually I had to take a ferry ride to get there. It was quite an adventure getting there, but I learned about permaculture quite a long time ago when I initially was introduced to the concepts of sustainability and really to the problems that we face. And permaculture always seemed like the obvious solution to me to these problems. And it was really with that desire to know more about it that I wanted to cover this for the extra environmentalist. All I can say is that the depth and breadth of all of the speakers there was phenomenal. It's one thing being able to read about these topics and uh, learn about them through videos and things, but having these people in person, it was just incredible. And the entire experience, if, if you can actually make it, I would highly recommend traveling to the Pacific Northwest and visiting this event. It was phenomenal, as you'll hear in this upcoming episode that really addresses the problems and the challenges that we face right now. And for those of you who have, were not able to make that amazing conference, we are lucky enough to now have some of that audio that Kevin was able to go there and capture for the show. So in this first segment, we're going to start off by covering the challenges and the problems that are currently facing our world. Uh, these are issues that I'm sure all of our audience is very familiar with. So we're just going to touch on these briefly before getting into the permaculture principles and how they can actually help us address these problems. So you're in for a really amazing ride listening to permaculture experts from around the world talking about something they know a lot about. The dominant paradigm teaches that money is the most important value and energy conservation and ecological sanity are nice if we can afford them. Most of the environmental movement has embraced the concept of triple bottom line 
which suggests that the economy needs to consider ecology and social justice issues. While it's good to focus on these economic decisions, the deeper truth is that the environment makes the economy possible. Energy creates money, not the other way around. Money is one of the most mysterious things. We all use it, but few think about how it is created. Money is loaned into existence based on debt and compound interest. This works as the total economy keeps getting bigger, but on the energy downslope, the monetary system cannot function properly anymore. And this is essentially the root of the financial crisis. It's not just Wall Street greed. Unfortunately, the Ponzi scheme is we're borrowing money to make this completely false economy. That this is all being done on borrowed money, therefore on borrowed time. And at what point do the printing presses just sort of run out of ink? Like I said, this could be tomorrow's news. We really don't know. We really don't know. I can just say that in this is the beginning of the unraveling of the dominant paradigm. It's so huge. We need to connect the dots between peak energy, climate change, renewable resource depletion, finite resource depletion, overpopulation, overconsumption, and financial crash. When you look at this and climate change and peak oil, the whole debt financial setup, I mean, they're all converging. And that's why we're here at the convergence to think of alternatives to this. But social unrest, climate change, economic disequity, overpopulation, military, these are all related to maintaining suburban lifestyle or the consequences of suburban lifestyle. It's just too many people using too much stuff. Like I said, I'm like waiting for the lights to go out and everybody's phones to stop working and then everybody to walk out and be like, what do we do? And that's like, right. you just like have to, yeah. You just have your plans and you just like do your little piece, but you're just like below the surface because that day will come. That, that great day. I, kind of, I imagine like everybody like, like walking out like the TV, pressing the things, not working, like open the door, like rub their eyes and like blink at the sunlight and look around. And it's like people's eyes, it's like when the control grid sort of starts to fall apart. What is resiliency and how do we go about recognizing it or measuring it? And so something I've been thinking about is to look at our lifestyles and think in a world of declining oil, it's not only oil and the energy that comes from it, but it's all the products that we use that are made out of petroleum. So if you're looking at as it begins to decline, how is that going to affect us? And some may still be available for really a long, long time, but it's going to be very, very dear. The price is going to be very high. And so we may not be able to afford these products. So it's to ask yourself, Thinking in that framework, is this still possible under this scenario? And if the answer is no, then obviously it's not resilient. If you're going to ask yourself if all of these things that I'm dependent on now are not going to be available in X number of years in the future, then it's not resilient. The more yeses we can create, over the next 5, 10, 20 years, the better off we're going to be. So it's, the game is to everybody examine their lifestyles and identify where all those no's are and work towards changing that around. On a per capita basis, peak energy globally was reached in 1979. We also have peak electricity. 
I think peak electricity was March 11, 2011, with the explosion of Fukushima. We have peak uranium. Half of the uranium used for nuclear power in the United States right now comes from megatons to megawatts, a program that is recycling Russian nuclear weapon material into electricity, which ends next year. Coal is also peaked. This is peak coal in Pennsylvania. This is 1920. 1920 was the peak of coal in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is where the coal industry started. In Britain, peak coal was 1913. The last time this production was this low, Napoleon was alive. So the reason we're drilling for oil in a mile of water is onshore, the good oil is gone. The days where you can stick a pipe in the ground and have a waterfall of oil come out are long gone. Peak oil is not an activist cause, not just because it's not discussed by the activists, but because addressing it is a civilization-wide shift, not a political campaign. So this is showing our petroleum use. Here's the peak. This is where we're at now. And this specific image came from David Holmgren, who co-founded the permaculture concept. He's outlining four different things that can happen from this peak situation. Do we have a techno-fantasy where we have lots of technology that can assist us to continue to increase our standard of living? Do we have green tech stability where we have sustainably oriented technology which allows us to plateau and continue with the standard of life we have now? Or is it a creative descent where we can power down through permaculture? Or do we experience like an all-out crash, which he describes as Atlantis? The real issue of peak oil is not personal transportation, but the risk to the food supply. Peak grain per capita in the world happened a quarter century ago. Even organic food is usually transported long distance and packaged with petroleum-based plastics. We're in a paradox. If we don't keep our civilization fueled, it will collapse, probably with a global war over resources. But if we keep doing what we're doing, it will destroy the life support systems of the planet. Some comments on the peak oil situation. David Holmgren said, the real issue of our age is how do we make a graceful and ethical descent? How are we going to adapt? What are the stories that we're going to be telling 20, 25 years from now, 50 years from now, when we look back and what did we do to participate in this challenge of time? And then Rob Hopkins, he wrote the Transition Handbook, founded the Transition Movement. He says, inherent within the challenges of peak oil and climate change is an extraordinary opportunity to reinvent, rethink, and rebuild the world around us. And I think within permaculture teachings and strategies, there's a lot of opportunities there. And if industrial civilization does not figure out how to survive and thrive without the fossil fuel, then technological civilization will be a short blip. David Holmgren was the co-originator of permaculture. And one of his books is called Future Scenarios. It's very short. It's even on his website, futurescenarios.org. And it's the best summary I've come across of the need to connect peak oil and climate change together. Focusing on energy shortage without dealing with climate has led to the false solutions of tar sands, offshore drilling, mountaintop removal, liquid natural gas, fracking for shale gas, and nuclear power. But focusing on climate while ignoring energy 
is one of the reasons for the political backlash against climate change awareness. The most important question facing the human race is how we're going to respond to the interconnected crises of peak oil, climate change, overpopulation, overconsumption. How do you want to use the rest of the oil? For more solar panels or more battleships? For Walmart or relocalizing food? So my peakometer is over here. I think the shift is on. I think things are going to change very quickly from this moment forward. I think the change is actually already happening around us. Our financial institutions are crumbling. Our ecosystems are in dire ecocide. And population is growing to 9 billion. And we're overfishing the waters. And there's climate change. And there's all this like doom and gloom around us. In nature, when there's overshoot, this is the model that overshoot usually follows. This was a reindeer herd introduced to an island in Alaska that didn't have any predators. And they ate and they ate, and they ate, and they ate all the food on the island, and then they crashed. Now Hollywood has been selling us this for several decades, Mad Max, Soylent Green. That's certainly a possibility, but I think one of the most important tasks for the permaculture movement is to come up with a different narrative than these. So permaculture is based in design. Permaculture is a design system, and the design system is similar everywhere in the world. So it begins with the ethics and principles, which are care of the earth, care of people, and share the surplus. And then we also go into a series of principles, which have been outlined in the writings of Bill Mollison and David Holmgren and Rosemary Morrow, which are based in observation of nature so that these principles guide us on how we can design using these principles of nature in our designs because the principles of nature suggest how to create sustainable systems. The choice for civilization is essentially between permaculture for nine billion people, a best case scenario, and a militaristic approach involving rationing and more conflict. Richard Heinberg in his book Power Down calls this the last man standing scenario and it is what the United States government and other governments and transnational corporations have chosen. The financial system that requires endless growth on a finite planet is one of the root things that has to shift for us to survive what we have created. Steady state economies need to be implemented in order to have a steady state future. Steady state economics parallels the working of an old growth forest where growth and decay are in balance. And so it's time to get hyperlocal. And in our hyperlocal reality, we have to be looking both at our edible forest gardens because perennials are so much more enduring and abundant over time than annuals, and we have to stop tilling the soil. An average ecosystem can produce four tons of soil an acre. Corn is eliminating 400 tons of soil an acre. And regular crops are anywhere in the range of 200 tons to 50 tons an acre that we're losing. We're not regenerating our soil. It's just a fact. And so moving into perennial ecosystems, perennial systems that are feeding us, we have to be building that soil tilth equation back up again. Ultimately, all agriculture will have to be sustainable eventually at some point, because if it isn't, we won't have any food to eat. This is way past after peak oil is gone and there is no oil left. Agriculture will still have to continue if we're going to continue as a species. Sustainability is a good idea, but our ecosystems and our agricultural lands are so degraded after a hundred years of monocropping that were they all to be converted to sustainable agriculture, it probably wouldn't be good enough. We need to get back to where we were in terms of soil fertility 
And by where we were, I'm talking pre-cultivation days. The plow has probably been the biggest foe of soil fertility ever in the history of mankind. You know, there's been 25 civilizations come and go on the planet. All of them were organic. Uh, so organic isn't necessarily the answer. And they almost all failed because their agriculture failed. The Romans went to Egypt because they ran out of land to farm in Italy. The Nile Valley, probably the most fertile place on earth, and that's why they went there so they could continue to feed the empire. Interesting enough, the Romans recognized this issue above and beyond the going to Egypt, but they passed a law that nobody could operate a plow unless they owned the land they were plowing. And the reason was is a slave didn't have any respect for the future of the land, but an owner did. And so when they did that, they were able to reduce soil erosion considerably because it was the guy who was running the tool had his future involved as opposed to not. The effect of erosion on civilization, we're looking at it at an accelerated condition compared to what the Romans had. You take six feet of topsoil away in a matter of 100 years, that's a magnitude greater than what the Romans had to deal with. So here's Wes Jackson. I saw Wes Jackson speak when I was in Iowa. He said that for every pound of vegetables we eat, 6 to 22 pounds are lost of topsoil. So that's because generally in most agricultural operations, the nutrients are being stolen from somewhere else, meaning nutrients are being trucked in. So when you grow vegetables, you know, you can think about those vegetables contain your water is uptake in those vegetables. And all the nutrients from your soil are uptake in those vegetables. And then if they get outsourced and sent somewhere else, then you're shipping your nutrients somewhere else or your water somewhere else. So like soils and water are married in a permaculture system. When we're doing a site analysis, you can't really look at the soils and the water separately. And then when you get into the natural history of the soils, you find that oftentimes water played a big role in why the soils are where they are. And so when we're looking at geomorphic land patterning in permaculture, you know, we look at rehydrating the landscape as our prime directive. There's also instances where we're actually dehydrating the landscape on purpose. Um, Michael Polarski says the opposite is always true, but typically we're looking at rehydrating a dehydrated landscape because of the impact of all of the deforestation and overgrazing and, and depletion Oftentimes, our landscapes are actually dehydrated. They've lost their capacity to hold water, the vegetation and the soils being the parts of our systems that are holding water for long term. So oftentimes, what our strategy is, is actually to rehydrate the landscape. And one strategy that many of you may be familiar with is key line energy capture. Somebody asked Mollison about his uh, inspirations for permaculture. And he said, well, primary one was P.A. Yeomans and his key line design system, the first system in the world for doing holistic design of a farm. Conventional engineering wants to take water from source to sink in pretty much a straight line. And then when we look at key line energy capture, it's not just about water, but dynamic water harvesting. We're actually looking at taking water or energy or nutrients in a system and moving it back and forth across the landscape as much as we can to get maximum surface area contact, to get water soaking back into the ground. And the soil is actually the best place to store water. When you store it in the soil, then you grow vegetation, and then the vegetation becomes a storage of water. When we have a forest at the top of a mountain, if you take away the biomass of the forest and you just imagine the water that is in the trees sitting there, a forest on the top of the mountain is like a lake sitting on the top of a mountain. 
It's like when we clear cut a mountaintop, we're taking away the lake that's sitting up there. So I've been to Haiti after the earthquake, and one of the most disastrous things in a landscape is to deforest the top of your hillsides. In permaculture, we talk about landforms, and one important pattern to notice in landforms is the point where the slope changes from concave to convex or from erosional to depositional is a really crucial thing to tend to in landform because when your slope is erosional, when it's that steep top of the slope, then you really need the biological layer to be able to sink in your water and filter it. And so in Haiti, that's been one of the major errors is that they deforested above their, I mean, they deforested everything. So they don't have a biological layer to filter the water. And this is one reason that the cholera epidemic has been so widespread. Look at retaining as much water as possible. Change the landscape to being very productive because the best storage we have is the soil. Most of the fresh water on earth that's not ice, and we're working on that, is in the soil. It's not in the rivers or the lakes, it's in the soil, in the groundwater, and that's what we need to do is recharge groundwater. To me, if I have a piece of bare ground and it's dry, the life processes have sort of dried up and, and you know, everything that's alive in there has gone into a hibernation phase. All the little microorganisms and things, the worms and everything moves into the soil levels that are still moist and some, the little tiny ones that can't move fast enough, they just go curl up and wait for the next rain. Whereas if I've got soil that's got something growing on it, every plant captures that solar energy, makes things in its leaves and pumps approximately 50% of all the energy it makes down to the roots, not only to feed the roots, but it pushes out of its roots a large percentage of what energy and stuff that it makes to feed the mycorrhizal life and the web of life under it. Fungi, worms, microorganisms, bacteria, the whole web of life under there is fed by what's being pushed out the roots. So if I've got a piece of ground with something green on it, I'm shading the ground, which is, we're hot over there, so we can use stand shading. It's shading the ground, it's capturing that solar energy and pushing it into the ground, increasing the productivity of my site. So the net productivity of a site, and I'm talking about the biological productivity of a site, is determined by how much of the solar energy you can capture on a site. And so hence when you have a, a system that's got multiple stories and is an evolved agroforest, we were in an old growth forest the other day, you know, 200 feet tall, and there's a lot of canopy space there. And the more leaf matter you have, basically the higher the biological productivity, which if you're smart and are a good manager can translate into economic productivity. In other words, how many things can you sell out of here? That reason it's called an edible forest garden is that we're planting food plants. And this is the tree, the, the guild, and you see how the different roots go. Some go deep, some are more shallow, and some are insect attracting. They're going to attract beneficial insects that are going to kill the pest insects on your tree, and your tree is going to grow well. It's called a forest garden, not because it's planted in the forest, but because it functions like a forest. So people observed nature, and they said, well, there's a natural forest, and you have the high trees, you have medium-sized trees, and then you have berry bushes, and then you have the ground cover, and you have things growing underneath. So that's what it looks like underneath, out in the natural forest. So we're replicating that. We're using that as the model. We're learning from nature. 
So once you plant this, you see the tree's roots? They're down pulling up water. So during the day, they pull up water. It goes through their trunk, and then it transpires out through their leaves. At night, it just holds water just under the surface, and it waters the plants that are in the guild under the tree. That's why the forest, nobody irrigates it, because that's the way nature works. We're just modeling that. We're helping taking this barren lawn area that isn't helping nature at all, and we're putting back a, a system that is natural and functions. So you only have to water your plants that you put in in the first few years, and maybe not even that long, and then after that, it's going to just take care of itself, just like the natural forest. Once you get the system established, you can step back to a certain extent. What we say in permaculture is that you allow a system to demonstrate its own evolution. You're always co-managing and co-creating the system rather than I'm calling the shots. Everything lives or dies by my command. So within permaculture, there's strategies offered that can help us generate income, generate resources, enhancing our connection with our place, building community, connecting with others, creating habitat for lots of different species, enhancing the productivity of our land or of other people, enhancing biodiversity. And what we're doing is reflecting what's intrinsic in nature, what we can observe from what's already there, things that meet local needs that are site-specific, that reduce toxins, reduce limiting factors, and generally just make life really delightful. So like in a monoculture, you have one high yield of one thing, which is really prone to failing because of insect predation, etc. So it turns out that by partitioning a valuable resource, the overall yield of the whole ecosystem goes up. And then Dave Jackie goes into this great explanation that I don't quite understand about the way that the leaves photosynthesize differently different colors of leaves, different ways that they're, they're behaving in the ecosystem that allows them to also partition the resource of the sun that one needs more shade to actually grow faster. If they're all at the same height fighting for the sun, you don't have the opportunity for the ones that are, are more shade loving to actually get what they want out of their photosynthesizing equation. So when you have a biodiverse garden, there's just so much more that's offered. Here it's showing the dynamics between areas that are deforested or managed by burning and there's erosion, places that don't have that much going on. And then here, a diverse community of plants that's working together to create natural ecosystem functions and tend to this with a thick web of life. So we need to look at like how are we caring for our soils and if we're outsourcing our food system to someone else to be growing food for us, then how are they tending to the soils? And how does that reflect the ecological system that we want to be participating in for the future so that we can do something about climate change and all these other things? turns out climate change is helped by planting forest gardens because all of the plants that you plant are going to be taking carbon out of the atmosphere and holding it in the soil and in the plants and in the, the trees and so on. So it's great for climate change. I call this carbon sequestration farming. The carbon fixed on my acre is going up at a good rate. Tying up carbon in the soil is what they tell us that we need to do. 
and my site's really doing it because every year I have more. Tr the trees get bigger, the shrubs get bigger, the woody above ground mass gets bigger, the roots in the ground get bigger, the leaves and the litter and everything is falling down. I have huge amounts of earthworms, bugs, spiders. My thing is just alive. There's birds nesting now. Every year there's more creatures in it. So it's really becoming really, I mentioned biodiverse, there, it's the diversity goes up every year in terms of the microfauna and microorganisms. So I'm really pleased with how the system's going. I don't have to fertilize in the long run. Once you get the system really t kicking over with all this biomass turnaround and there's a cycle happening, I'm not going out there and fertilizing. I don't put manure out now. I don't go out and spread minerals, maybe a little bit, but mostly now the system, it, someone says, don't you have to add input every year? I said, well, if, the more you take, the more you have to give. But my system, I'd say, so far is, is on an upward trend without adding much inputs. You've got to add the inputs to get a good start. But you know, later on, there's less labor, there's less inputs, there's more biodiversity. And so the money comes easier. In permaculture, we're looking at a different paradigm where we're looking at, you know, where are things coming from and where are they going to? And how can we create a closed system design where we have different elements in our system that can be used on site? When you take the needs and the yields into account, then you can combine the different elements in your system with other elements so you create functional interconnection where things are connected to each other, providing for each other's needs and yields. And then you have a really stable system because you've got a web of interconnection. A fruit tree is going to grow much better if it has all these plants planted inside of its drip line that are going to help it. You're going to have insect attracting plants and you're going to have things like comfrey that go deep and pull up minerals. You have mulching plants, you can whack it off and put down the leaves. And so this is a fruit tree with plants growing under it. So, you know, you usually see orchards and the trees are just standing there like naked and with grass underneath them. And so every orchard I look at, I think, wow, that could be a polyculture with all this food growing under it. The idea of holism is that nature doesn't function as parts, it functions as interconnected wholes. Holistic management model. It's a value-based decision-making model that's influenced by ecosystem processes. The point here is that it can make decisions that are absolutely environmentally, economically, and socially appropriate. Permaculture can be applied anywhere in the world to end hunger, provide jobs, enhance habitat, and provide absolutely delightful places to be. Another quote by Bill Mollison. Well, it's a revolution, but it's the sort of revolution that no one will notice. It might get a little shadier. Buildings might function better. You might have less money to earn because your food is all around you and you don't have any energy costs. Giant amounts of money might be freed up in society so that we can provide for ourselves better. So it's a revolution. But permaculture is anti-political. There's no room for politicians or administrators or priests. And there's no laws either. The only ethics we obey are care of the earth, care of people, and reinvestment in those ends. So I regard Bill Mollison and Mr. Holmgren as the Karl Marx and the Frederick Engels of a different political movement because they and we, as part of that movement, aren't trying to take the world by storm or change it by force. We're practicing what can be termed anarchism. And I say that word and it pictures a guy throwing bombs and it goes off immediately. 
But there's a difference, and Sago taught me this a long time ago. There's a, really a fundamental difference if you look at the politics between anarchy, which is the lack of government, and anarchism, which is an organized molecule of society. Is you and your family, you and your neighborhood, you and your friends, that these affinity groups are the real molecules of society. And when those molecules get activated and become self-aware and humble in the process, then we have, when government fails, the strongest thing, the most resilient part. Here's some definitions on what permaculture is. It's a conscious design system for creating sustainable human habitats that are deeply rooted in the unique characteristics of the place. That's one reflection upon looking at why we might be in a food crisis, is that our food systems need to be based in where we live. You know, they need to reflect those characteristics. Permaculture systems are designed based on local ecologies and strive to mimic their diversity, stability, and resilience. And permaculture design creates intentional ecologies to meet human needs for food, shelter, housing, appropriate technology, economics, and community. So by intentional ecology, I mean we're looking at the natural principles that we can observe in the native forest, and then we're creating an intentional design where we substitute similar elements for similar things that are useful for humans. So depending on what we're designing depends on what plants we're using and what the palette is that we're choosing from. This is not a recipe. There's a bunch of ingredients, and we're going to learn how those ingredients taste together collectively over time. So the first thing when you're designing for permaculture is to know where you're at and to know your climate, because that really reflects what we can do. So that's important for choosing what plants you're going to grow. My theme is that we need to add to our template, in order to practice permaculture, the plants that were here before we arrived that it's interesting, but it's not sufficient to say, well, I took some plants from Europe, some plants from South America, some plants from Asia, some plants from Australia, and I put that together and I call it the way I do permaculture. But we have to look to right where we are because there's so many plants here of benefit, of use. And if we don't practice that culture, it becomes lost. So let's just start with the fact that native plants can be a really healthy part of our diet and we should be honoring our native plants and putting them in all over the place. It's just not enough to feed this population. And it's not what we eat. 99.9% .9 of what we eat does not come from here. And so we need to figure out a way to grow that. So Toby Hemingway has a great chapter in Gaia's Garden about prioritizing natives right next to us means that we have to go take out the natives somewhere else to have a farm to import it into the city. And I think that's an interesting argument. And so by growing the stuff right around us that we can eat the apple off the tree or grow our vegetables in our backyard, theoretically, we can leave those native systems intact out there. So here's another philosophical piece. This comes from Matthew Hall, a book that was just published last year, and it's called Plants as Persons. In many ways, restoration is a way of enacting our knowledge of plant personhood and human-plant kinship. It can point us in the direction of ritual, of embodied performed activity, of apology for centuries of domination. Dialogically oriented restorative action is a collaboration between human beings and plants to recreate as closely as possible wild and free living ecosystems. So just would, out of all that, I would have you remember the words wild and free living ecosystems because that's what we approximate in permaculture design except it's not really wild. 
So by adding native plants to the mix, we're making a further step across that invisible boundary between domestic and wild. It's somehow good for you Got to get a result or two In the form of something real Now if you're feeling stressed And not the best And have trouble finding happiness Well, here's one thing I will suggest so Obtain yourself yield Obtain yourself yield Sustain your energy Don't drain yourself Maintain yourself Obtain yourself Environmentalist Stock Tips With recent highs in the Dow Jones Industrial Index, numbers are getting larger and larger. High score. For investors that appreciate really large numbers, we can recommend some international investments that also have large numbers. Zimbabwe's stock market has been among the highest numbers in the world of any investment index. Zimbabwe's numbers have been increasing faster and faster even faster than some of the historic rapidly increasing number markets like Germany's hyperinflation. That's right. Don't look at inflation as a thing that is going to bring the value of your money down. Think of it only as a growth factor. So get your wheelbarrow, get your pickup truck, get your dump truck, fill it up with cash and currency and bring it down where you can buy one piece of stock, only one piece of stock per customer. You are listening to the Extra Environmentalist Permaculture Convergence episode. And so that wraps up our first segment for today on how permaculture fits into this broader global context and can actually start addressing some of these challenges of peak oil and energy depletion and climate change. And so that whole segment started out and we were talking about all the you know financial collapse and financial instability and ecological problems that we face. But I think one of the exciting things and one of the things that always keeps me going is knowing permaculture. So Kevin, can you talk a little bit about 
how your approach to permaculture allows you to face these problems that seem like they're on a global basis and are so large for anyone to tackle and actually start addressing some of these and and, uh, actually start building a more cohesive response to them. Yeah, Justin, permaculture really does offer solutions of what we need to do today to address the global problems facing mankind. That's really what inspires me about permaculture. It provides a framework that's based upon the dynamics of how the world actually works in order to enable a deeper understanding of why our current systems are experiencing these crises. Basically, this requires us to take the view of the extra environmentalist, the the view of the outsider looking in, to really begin to examine the systems that we participate in our cultures, our institutions, and our economy, and find ways to fundamentally reinvent and change just about everything. I think we're beginning to question our old operating beliefs that if brute force isn't working, you simply haven't applied enough of it. And we're really beginning to realize that there is a connection between our personal health and the health of our environment. It's through permaculture that we can become aware of our place inside these natural systems that support life here on Earth. We can learn that it's not about force or conquering nature or domination. It's about co-creating with nature. That life is an interrelated, interdependent phenomena. And that we exist, not separately, but in communion with all living things that everything is in relationship, and that the fate of all living things is interconnected and that we've become responsible for that fate. So let's talk about soils. One of the big challenges that faces our modern agricultural systems is the rate of soil depletion and the poor quality of our soils and basically using our soils as a sponge for chemicals in order to produce this high level of agricultural output that we need to sustain 7 billion people as we grow towards maybe even as many as 9 billion people as what the UN estimate is for 2050. There's many ways that permaculture helps us address building soil. What were some of the standout points for you, Kevin, on dealing with soil and building healthy soils? Well, I think it's important to note that we don't need industrial agriculture to feed the world. That's really just a big myth. And even organic agriculture is capable of producing equivalent yields. It just requires more labor and healthy soils. The problem is that we need to regenerate our depleted soils, and this is one aspect that permaculture's really well known for. When we look at degraded soils, we see that they offer a great opportunity for pioneer species. Some would call them weeds, but they actually perform an ecological function. They're trying to build up the topsoil's carbon levels. And as the carbon in the soil increases, bacterial populations increase, and the soil's once again able to support fungi which we're going to go into more in our second permaculture episode. But basically, these are all necessary steps for a return to healthy soil. I think the real takeaway for this is that fast-growing weeds and insect predation are actually ways that nature uses to eliminate monoculture and increase biodiversity. Permaculture uses these same type of concepts to restore the life in the soil 
and create food forests that function in the same manner as our ecosystems. So on one of our past episodes, we interviewed the author of Dirt, who uh, talks about how the degradation and erosion of soil in an empire kind of led to the end of that empire. He uh, noted the Roman Empire and other empires throughout history. How does soil play a role in this, this process? How does it lead to the end of empire? Well, nothing is really more fundamental in history than wars over resources. And the ability to feed your population is a primary need. And soil's fundamental at providing for that need. In that last segment, it pointed out that agriculture is one of the greatest ecological destroyers that mankind has really ever conceived of. Toby Hemingway defines agriculture as a means of transforming formerly functioning ecosystems into more people. And if you put those two together, you'll see one of the most significant patterns of modern civilization. The sacrifice of the future for the present and the application of technology to achieve that goal. But really, it's a one-way route. Once the resources are consumed, the colonization phase of empire ends. And that's exactly what our society seems to be struggling with today, with the convergence of peak oil and climate change. And so much of the narrative of climate change and peak oil can really be a very scary narrative, and also one that's based on an idea that humans are always negative and destroying the planet. So I think that what really excites me about permaculture is that it provides a realistic framework for thinking about how we can actually be regenerative as a species. And it's not easy all the time because we have to do it on a realistic framework, but permaculture gives us that. And it allows us to do it at a rate that's compatible with nature. And that framework also extends into the social aspect into the relationships that we have with each other and with the world in which we live. With that said, let's start our segment on the social aspect of permaculture. Within our gardening and with our permacultures and our ideas of the future is our greater self. So in our gardens are infinite possibilities, infinite ways of doing things. And I see each of us, each of us can experience our own experience there and our own way of doing it by being the observer and the creator. Donella Meadows is a systems thinker. She wrote that book, The Limits to Growth and Beyond the Limits to Growth. People were laughing at her because she was doing all these computer models that were showing how scarce our resources were going to become in an exponential way. And Donella Meadows taught me that when you're trying to affect change, there's different levels of intervention that you can intervene on that have more or less effect. And she said the highest level of intervention, if you're trying to change things quickly, you go to the highest level of intervention, which is paradigm shift. It's where your mind has to wrap itself around a completely different way of looking at things. And in, in many respects, permaculture involves a paradigm shift for most people because they don't think of the microbes in the soil being affecting the roots and the trees and the animals around the trees. They don't think that way. They think, I put a carrot seed in the ground and I'll get a carrot. It's as far as their food growth consciousness goes. But 
Anyway, Donella Meadows got me uh, hooked on the idea of trying to come up with the paradigm shift. And with my propensity to want to think outside the box, I was evolving myself in Local 2020 going, well, what can we do that will get the most number of people involved the most quickly in this need for us to shift our behavior? And it occurred to me that if you're not meeting people's basic needs, they're not going to listen to you. You know, if you want to get them to come to this workshop and they don't know what permaculture is and they don't see how permaculture is going to affect them, they're not going to come. So I was busy trying to figure out how do we get people relating more avidly to the earth and to the life systems of the earth. And I thought growing food, everyone's got to eat. If we grow food together, we would be in a common ground, literally common ground situation where we're actually working together towards something that we have a collective interest in and we need. So we might as well pay attention to it. There was quite a bit of discussion about paradigm shift and it really requires a paradigm shift. There are set ways of doing things and it doesn't fit very well with our <laughs> view of how the world goes. And I think it's just the way the human brain is wired is that most people are not gonna change until the crisis is on them. Psychologists have looked at this and anthropologists and they just, they seem to think it's the way the human brain is wired. We're made to think about today, maybe tomorrow, but we're not people who think five and 10 years ahead of time. We just don't really have that capability, but it's something we're gonna to have to figure out really how to do. And as somebody said earlier, the big one is trying to convince others that this is happening and we need to start to prepare for it. So we're at this peak moment where, you know, like the dawn of humanity to 1850 and we went like, here we are. And we're kind of at this grace period. We can look back where we just came from in the energy ascent culture. 95% of everything that's ever been manufactured or made or extracted from this earth happened in the last 50 years. And looking out over the other side, if it's equally as precipitous a decline, that's really scary. How do we get to what I call the abundant meander out the other side of peak? And what are you going to do to facilitate that? You got to plant trees, you got to myceliate, you got to share knowledge, build water systems, you have to build capacity, you have to use birth control. What is that, that old bumper sticker? Plant a tree, use a condom. You guys remember that one? Um, and you got to go hyperlocal. That's a really big one. And that means that this is my favorite metaphor. It's like, how can the table be full to abundant if you don't bring something to the table? And I don't mean stopping off at Whole Foods and getting something in a plastic container and sticking it on the table. We are done, hopefully as a culture, with having somebody else grow and pick and ship the food to us and we belly up and stuff ourselves and leave the dishes for somebody else. This is our table. Please fill it up with your skills and your love and your intention and your heart and soul and then we can have a feast. We have to be a Brazilian and abundant. And that's what this edible forest gardens can do, but we have to have the human equivalent complex social structure to accompany this. I like to explore this idea of how do we build our human forest ecosystem while we're building and planting our actual forest ecosystems. And how many people in the ecosystem are actually standing really tall and attracting information to them. Pollinators are bringing in that information and standing really tall and sort of opening up possibilities. So if we could look around our human ecosystems and say, who's missing in my ecosystem to make me more successful, to make my whole human ecosystem more successful, and how do we facilitate that? 
I don't really know what my neighbor's skills are, but I'm guessing we have some pretty big holes in our skill sets of what the village would need over time if we were in a different post-peak reality which we're heading into. For these people who are sort of skeptics, maybe talk about the stuff, but more importantly is to have a lot of community events that you bring people together. And it may not be directly related to transition type projects or permaculture, but still you're bringing the community together and people are getting to know each other and most importantly, trusting each other. And that was really laying the groundwork so when it's the fan, you know, you know these people and you trust these people and that you can then help each other. Have you ever been in a human ecosystem where you're all kind of the same and you don't have a lot of diversity and you end up arguing and kind of not having a good relationship? Family? Family. <laughs> the fun and dysfunction. Okay, so family. Okay, you all kind of look the same, you all kind of live in the same house, and you still really don't get along, right? How about in a work situation? You're fighting for the same resources, and it leads to conflict. Too many cooks in the kitchen. So what I'm trying to figure out now is how do I sort of marry the, the metaphors that I'm gleaning from the edible forest ecosystem into my human ecosystem? We make this joke that you put the plants in the ground, at least they stay where you put them. So I, it's like, you know, they don't argue with you. They may not grow well, but at least there's not this like, you know, in your face thing. They're way more passive aggressive, right? So, but in my human system, like how do I go out into my human polyculture and start to gild out my neighborhood? And part of that is identifying what skills are there and what interests are there in the kind of hierarchical, institutionalized, like legalized complex that we live in, we've lost the power to connect with people when there are issues that need to be talked about. It's like that has been abstracted and taken away from our relationships where we go to a police officer or we go to the courts to solve the problems that are happening amongst the people who are living together. So we actually really want to embrace those moments when someone doesn't like the idea that we're getting bees. So let's have a dialogue about that and let's figure out like what is the issue there and how can we both inform one another and expand our own horizons through the course of doing that. You know, if you're in a community, you're wanting to help affect a change and we're all knowing <coughs> that there's this massive amount of stuff that needs to shift. It's so effective to come into it, seeing abundance and seeing possibility and seeing everyone as a resource. And this is from a woman named Beth Garrigus, and she lives in New Mexico. We are stepping away from the shores of everything that has numbed and distracted and kept us small, pushing off into the great river, a river that is within, that may restore our original goodness and wholeness, that we may be reminded of who we are. We're just going through the motions here on the ground of resolving the problems that divide us, that separate us and that make us think that it's us and them. That disassociation between ourselves as if we're on the earth. I mean, come on, where else are you going to be? You are in the earth, you are of the earth. And I think that that's the same thing I see in healing people with their ills. Their mind and their body are like separated somehow. It's like they don't understand the connections between their thoughts and their actions and their feelings. The same division sort of happens with how we relate to the earth.
It's important to begin with the children and for children to be educated about where their food comes from and how to care for the planet because, you know, we need to really think about what kind of legacy we're leaving for other people in the future and how we're going to transition and educate them as we become aware of the global crises, how we can support them for the future. In the Permaculture Designer's Manual, the big black book by Bill Mollison, he states that the only ethical decision is for us to take responsibility for our own existence and for that of our children. And, you know, we live in such an interesting time where there's so many different choices that we can make each day, and it's rather hard to know what is the most ethical decision and what are the different side effects of making different decisions. And you forge your first identity. And it's an identity based on the norms of the culture. You absorb the basic values of your culture, of your family, honesty, courage, accepting others, caring, cooperation, avoiding waste. There's basic values that are important in an ecocentric culture that we need to be imparting to our children. Eco-literacy, what are the plants, the names of the plants, what do they do? What are the animals that are around you? So this is a time to become authentic, to really listen to who you are and what your connection is with nature. There's an egocentric version of the garden, and those are the kids that are removed from nature. No child left behind, except they're, they're totally left behind in, within indoors. They end up not getting enough exercise, they get fat, they get ADHD, they get depressed. They learn the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, but they don't learn about nature, arts, self-care, emotional intelligence. And so the kids end up not loving learning. Well, of course, permaculture is a huge tool that we have to work with, and of course that's why we're all here. But as we know, it is far more than gardens and growing food. It is values, it's ideals, it's goals that have a lot to do with taking care of human needs in ways that are people and planet friendly. I have to say, to our credit, is that enough people have been saying that crazy word in so many different places and in so many different ways that in Peru and Brazil and the boonies, you say permaculture and they think they know what you're talking about. Whether we know what we're talking about or not, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure. But the fact that there is a movement and it is moving and it's going deep into the planet, into the developing world. That's thrilling. But speaking of paratroopers, sort of the Peace Corps model, hi, I'm from permaculture, I'm here to get your stuff together for you. When we have a huge amount of indigenous knowledge, they've all been affected by Western civilization, and these are developing countries, these aren't aboriginal countries. So they're losing stuff as fast as, as you can imagine, you know. But they're also capable of learning and growing, so we're sort of what the Peace Corps did and tried to do on a much more anarchistic basis. Using the molecules that we find, bringing our energy and our knowledge and our enthusiasm to it, and hopefully our humility. Because the folks, whether it's in the backyards of Grays Harbor or someplace out in Pucallpa, Peru, they've got a lot. We're trying to help them remember not trying to lay our stuff on them. We're trying to help them remember what they already know. A little phrase I use is, catch their attention, deliver a simple message, allow assimilation, and then support them in that understanding so that it's theirs. They don't have to take a design course to understand what we're talking about. 
I didn't even know the word permaculture five years ago, so, you know, it's like, it doesn't mean that I, I suddenly began working on myself, but I had new tools to bring to people, and it was really exciting for me to have a whole tribe of people that were thinking similar thoughts. I wasn't out there by myself. So there was a certain healing for me having a sense of belonging and that there's other people doing the same stuff. And that sense of belonging, I think, is one of the things that ails our villages so much, that we lack that sense of belonging and connection. We're isolated by a number of things. Whether or not we have privilege, the grid that was laid down to divide up our neighborhoods so that it's convenient for the military to get through and see what's going on. And I mean, there's just so many different things. The GMO, uh, you name it, there's just so many avenues that are so challenging to, to try and stay open-hearted about. If you focus on what you don't like, you're going to get more what you don't like. If you're fearful, you're going to get fear. If you focus on what you, what you want to see and somehow find that vibration, that feeling within you, then that's what you're going to receive. So for building our beautiful world that I see already exists within us somewhere and within our world, I believe what we require is see the future and focus on that future and lose the words like I choose to fight back against this political system or this government or uh, this method and use the words I already see the answers. I feel and experience the answers. And then as you do that, the people, places, things, times and events come to you to create the experience that you already are vibrating at. Let's get with nature because this is what's missing in our lives. I say ours as the, as the society, is that contact with nature. And if we can just bring that piece back, we can operate and do our work and share this healing process. That's the work that it doesn't involve political organization or voting in the next election or any of that. It starts and ends with self. And the empowerment that comes from that, nobody can take away from you. It's just, it's really curious that, of course, in our high modernist and capitalist world, like we've reduced ourselves and individuated ourselves to such a point where we literally identify with one function that we play in the capitalist economy. It's like you meet someone at a party and like one of the first questions that you're gonna ask them is what do you do? And then they typically respond to that with like a one, like a unifunctional answer, like I'm a cook or I'm an architect. And so really what we're trying to do is respond to that by facilitating a kind of a generalist ethos, which is kind of like a villager ethos. We're recognizing that all of the people that amongst whom we live have many, many different skills and capacities and experiences to offer in the project that we're working on. And so we're trying to activate those and engage them in localized relationships as much as we possibly can. So I think that Every step along the way in the work we do at Planet Repair, we're always thinking, how can we mobilize and benefit by activating as many different social relationships 
in the place around us as we can at once. What we want to build is a relational network, a capacity, a human capacity. So this big, huge thing is actually small in that sense. The responses are fractal. They can be scaled from the personal, family, and neighborhood levels to the bioregional and global levels. It's a false choice to wonder which level is the most important. All of these and more are needed. Different people of different talents, no one can address all of them. You know, this is a process of embedding oneself in the land or, you know, in the landscape and within a village or a neighborhood or a community. So our task is to see, well, where is the overlay between the inherent ecological patterns that people are practicing and what we might call like grid mentality, the mentality of separation, the mentality of consumption. And so if we can start to see this as an overlay, we can start to find the tipping points or the places where we can make small interventions that might really kind of shift the social dynamic. We're all kind of susceptible to the notion that we will power the society, we'll do all the work, and yet we won't have any power ourselves. So that makes us not resilient. And then what we are saying is, of course, at the most local level, we build resilience upon reconnection and localizing as much as we can with each other and to become something like a village. Talking again about the beginning point where people are in isolation, what we've kind of realized is that patriarchy literally stacks dysfunction. You're in a dystopic condition. One wrong decision after another keeps happening. Wrong in the sense that, first of all, most of the decisions that are affecting us aren't made by ourselves where we live. We're living with the consequences, but we apparently don't have the power to directly address the issues, even though we're the ones at the local scale who understand the local condition, and it should be us that brings our powers to bear to solve whatever issue there might be, and then we build community out of that. So there's this paradox. We feel like we can't do that. All these things keep happening. The world seems to be increasingly sort of dysfunctional, and of course it would be that way because of a few really mistaken choices at the beginning of the design process about the places where we live. First of all, that power would be alienated and we would have no power. There's no ecology in the world that would alienate its own intelligence because that means right away all loops will not close. They will all be broken. We need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, like in South Africa, for the U.S. Empire. And it's not about vindictiveness or prosecution or being partisan. It's about understanding what has been done in our name and that we have let this happen in our name and that the resources for permanent war need to be shifted for our cooperative survival. During World War II, the government promoted victory gardens. But for the war on terror, they just want us to continue mindless shopping. Now, if we had a government, media, corporations, an educational system focused on survival, we might see some updated versions of this. We need full-scale, system-wide shift. I would say the, the whole need to buy and sell and to grow the economy, that's kind of what shapes what our lifestyle is. And we're here as people interested in permaculture to say we've got other ideas. So we're permaculturalists, and we know that the dynamic edge is at the hedgerow. It's the interface. And what we have to figure out what we're going to do with these societal ills is how are we going to make the pathways and build the thresholds, the bridges, so that our villages can heal. And each of us is already doing that, and it's my hope that we will 
see more of that and think about that when we're going out into the world. It's important to come in, obviously, you know, come in. Maybe you're just coming into your own awareness in the neighborhood you've lived all your life. But to come in with, well, with true humility and not coming in presuming. And I think it's really important when you're engaging the social context and wanting to cultivate a more resilient state of community, you need to come in in spite of whatever biases and feelings and sort of perspectives you might have ultimately on what people are already doing. I think it's important to come in valuing everything. I think the opposite of the wet shaggy dog approach is kind of judgmental and scornful approach when we see people that are driving like a Hummer or whatever it is that they're doing, they're kind of watching television all the time. It's really easy for us as ecologically minded people to just kind of write them off. But I think what we're kind of calling for is engaging people through a kind of compassion interaction where we try and figure out where they actually are, where's their edge, and like how can we kind of work with that. And what's big is anything that brings people together to build mutual identification with something. And when it comes to something like a garden or even a little bench, like it might take dozens or maybe even hundreds of school kids, for instance, to build a cob bench. And then you've done like, you know, you've stacked the functions of mentoring and placemaking and modeling of all these different processes and even of economies. So that's all awesome. And then after that, the thing sits there and thousands of people interact with it and see it. So that's big. It's a small thing, but it's enormous. So in terms of starting small, you, you start small in order to freaking start. But starting small doesn't mean that you're doing a small thing. If you're working with the conditions and trying to engender networks, then it's massive, then it's gigantic. It's beyond scale. I wanted to do this neighborhood model because I felt like if we're relating to our neighbors, you not only can grow food and walk to your food source, but you can share cars and you can watch each other's kids and pets and share tools and it just makes the sustainability functions way easier. So instead of necessarily going through the hoops of starting what like has also been started in Port Townsend as an eco-village or co-housing community, we can just take regular neighborhoods and turn them into ecological systems where people talk to each other and they have reason to have relationship and relate to each other. And the cool thing is there's a ton of diversity. I mean, you've got Republicans living right next to Democrats, but you know what? They all have to eat and they all probably have pets that need care when they go on vacation and stuff like that. So I just felt like creating these contexts in which we had to relate to each other was a good plan. That it's like a hop, skip, and a jump to go from a neighborhood organizational effort to a community garden or to a car or tool sharing network because people start to know each other and they're doing the common ground thing of getting prepared because it makes sense. So we're in a cultural emergency and it's confusing that things are getting better and worse at the same time. We have the potential to convert the military industrial complex, to redirect the financial system, to use the tremendous talents we've developed in civilization toward actual sustainability. I'll close with another excerpt from Kennedy's United Nations speech. Quote, Never before has man had such capacity to control his own environment, to end thirst and hunger, to conquer poverty and disease, to banish illiteracy and massive human misery. We have the power to make this the best generation of mankind in the history of the world, or to make it the last. Let's suppose that you were able every night to dream any dream you wanted to dream. And you would naturally, as you began on this adventure of dreams, you would fulfill all your wishes. You would have 
every kind of pleasure you can see. And after several nights, you would say, well, that was pretty great. But now let's, um, let's have a surprise. Let's have a dream which isn't under control. Well, something is going to happen to me that I don't know what it's going to be. Then you would get more and more adventurous and you would make further and further out gambles as to what you would dream. Finally, you would dream where you are now. This next headline regarding Walmart suggests that it looks like sort of the Soviet era in terms of shelves are empty. Walmart struggles to restock store shelves as U.S. sales slump. Walmart Stores Incorporated, already struggling to woo shoppers constrained by higher taxes, is getting worse at keeping shelves stocked. The retailer's U.S. chief told executives, according to minutes of an officer's meeting obtained by Bloomberg News, and they also, Bloomberg calls them, previously a paragon of logistics. I think they meant to say cancer of retail. You know, this is the problem when you have a monoculture, when you have one dominant player that's come in and destroyed all the competition, all the mom and pops that got destroyed, all the competition that got wiped out because of Walmart squeezing the suppliers by manipulating markets, by manipulating the politicians. They end up as a monoculture. Now the monoculture is sick, and now when they go down, they're going to take the entire huge workforce with them. Remember, it's the biggest employer in America, that and the military. So even the military that goes in for Uncle Sam to secure oil assets and slave labor for Walmart to pass into the consumer in America is going to go out of business because you got a monoculture that's fatally ill with a cancer of retailing that can't possibly survive anymore. If you awaken from this illusion and you understand that black implies white, self implies other, Life implies death. You can feel yourself, not as a stranger in the world, not as something here on probation, not as something that has arrived here by fluke, but you can begin to feel your own existence as absolutely fundamental. What you are basically, Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Literally, an infinite amount of money can be created uh, by the government. Unfortunately, the government is not creating this money, all this uh, quantitative easing. They could be creating it for public uh, investment. They could be creating it to build infrastructure. They could be creating it to write down debts, but they're only giving it to Wall Street. That's uh, what people have to realize. The money that's being created is only going to the banks, almost entirely to the 1%, not to the 99%. Making a run for the ATM. People in Cyprus try to withdraw as much cash as they can on news up to a tenth of their savings could disappear. The situation is unacceptable. They've deceived the people by saying that no deposits would be seized. Why should they take our money? I don't understand this. We work and we deposit money for our own purposes and they come to take our money. This is unfair. Unfair. 
With banks closed for the weekend and a public holiday on Monday, one man showed up with a bulldozer. We are protesting against the deceit we faced as far as the deposits are concerned. They were saying that our deposits were safe. Now we have to see what we can do. The Cypriot government announced this unprecedented one-time tax on deposits as part of a deal to receive $13 billion in bailout. So, how does it work? People with savings of less than 100,000 euros will pay a levy of 6.75%, but those with anything more on their accounts will forfeit 9.9%. This radical measure will raise 5.8 billion euros, or around $7.5 billion. Not everything is awful. Rejoice, America. The Dow has hit a historic high. Kevin, in thinking about the social aspects of permaculture, what really resonated for you from the convergence and in putting the segment together? Well, for me, attending the conference and listening to all of the recorded sessions really helped me to put my thoughts together in a new way. This new understanding I came to begins with the fact that the very nature of life itself is relational and that the quality of our lives reflects the quality of our relationships, both with ourselves, with each other, and with our environment. It's these relationships that determine the quality of our lives and the vitality of life around us. We are, after all, a biological species, adapted in both mind and body to this living world. I think we're beginning to notice that we live on an increasingly small planet. We're no longer isolated from or unaffected by our neighbors as we have been in the past. And I think it's important that we begin to think of ourselves both as individuals and as a member of a larger community. I know that I used to really believe in the whole survivalist movement, that I'd try to escape and be completely self-sufficient. But I've come to the realization that this is the same type of thinking that's contributing to the crises of civilization, the belief that we live in separation from each other and from the planet. When I ask myself the question, how can I survive? My thoughts naturally seem to go to those around me. What's going to happen to them? If societal collapse really does happen, what's going to happen to the world around me? For me, the whole survivalist thing has become a dead end. I know I'd be awfully lonely defending my beautiful bunker. So in that segment, one thing that really stood out for me was in thinking about your career in permaculture terms and how society wants to fit you in a very defined job role, very much like the boxes we talk about on, on our show on so many different episodes. But it's really cool to think of your job in the mindset of permaculture where you want to stack functions and tackle m multiple things. And that's definitely something that we see now in one of our upcoming interviews. We were speaking with an economics professor about the history of Adam Smith. 
he was saying that what we really need to think about is not that we're going to have, you know, eight or nine different jobs throughout our career, that we're really going to need, you know, three or four different ways to generate revenues throughout our lives. And I think that's an interesting way to think about it, because if you are going around from patch of land to patch of land and converting it into food forests, you really can have multiple streams of food and multiple streams of expertise that you developed. It's a completely different way of looking at a career and at a life than what we have now. The concepts of sustainability and ecological design that we learn from permaculture really could create a healthy, durable, resilient, just, and prosperous community that the world so desperately needs right now. And in our third segment, we're going to learn more about this framework and our relationship with the built environment in which we live. For all the mystery that surrounds it, we evolved from simple observations that people are affected for good or ill by our surroundings. The shape of the landscape could leave an imprint upon an individual's life affecting the character or the prosperity. The size and shape and the colors of buildings and skyscrapers affect the natural flow of energy and reflect much about the kind of energy that will manifest in you. My framework for looking at all of history is this tension between villages and empires, where empires want to take the land and even the lives of village-based cultures and then impose systems and then extractive processes. And in that transition, what we know is that villagers tend to be generalists. They're rubbing off on each other because they're a place-based culture. They're always learning from each other. So they all know how to make music. They don't need to be a professional. They all know stuff about the cycles of you know, planting and harvesting. They're all participants in various scales and even subcultures within their own community. So we know that village-based cultures are generalists, and that means that they themselves are diverse in their behaviors and in the ways that they interface with each other as generalists. Well, then the empire comes along and imposes the city-state on top of that, and then we all find ourselves as specialists. And as that plays out over time, we're sort of trying to figure out what our career is going to be as a specialist. It's sort of normative to us, but that transition from the generalist to the specialist, kind of by force, was not a voluntary, but rather a violent process. So we go into this knowing that what we're trying to re-engender or release or reveal is generalist nature that we all have. We know that it simply proceeds from creative interaction with each other. In a place-based condition, where we actually are creatively collaborating, we will become generalists. And so part of our job is, is to engender creative processes that bring people together, and then they start to take on other dimensions that they thought they weren't even capable of. It's really lovely. It's, you don't even really have to work that hard. It's more about revealing what's already there. Our starting point for so many different subjects or so many different projects and initiatives is to begin by recognizing that we're in this landscape that's characterized by the grid, an urban condition that is so obviously a colonial landscape that really isolates people. And if you understand it from a larger design perspective, for instance, from a zoning point of view, 
we know that housing has been laid out of these vast monocultural tracts, almost as if you're just growing a field of cabbage or something. You know, people really want to mix things up. Like the notion of mixed use as this new idea in the last couple of decades, where it's like, oh wait, maybe living and working should be closer together. Maybe we could even mix that up and so people could live work in the same space. That's interesting, but that's just kind of like a evidence of our recovery. But the fact is that we've laid out mostly where people are, are already living. We've got this existing condition, just pervasive existing condition, that's really monocultural in a sense. It seems that way. It's just housing tract, and you all must leave to go to the working zone. And at the end of the day, come back to the housing zone. And that tends to sort of nullify us and make it very difficult to even know each other's names. And what's left in terms of our perceptions is that we're sort of susceptible to what we're told about each other, you know, whatever sort of our, our bias or projections might be. We tend to not really even know the names of the people around us. So where, where's your starting point for going deeper to find out like, oh, wow, well, they might look like me, but whoa, they're so much different in their background. Or I had no idea that they had these skills and talents and these resources that could be brought to bear. But, you know, overcoming that chasm or that void, I mean, the, the void of the street itself doesn't seem to be a commons that unifies it. It seems to be a barrier. I mean, that's sort of how things have played out in the design of the North American city, especially, that it ends up being a context of, of division. But I want to start by just talking about patterning a little bit here. Because we are at this disadvantage here. Because we have grown up in this grid and this grid has been superimposed on the landscape. And I, I bet that pretty much everybody in this room was born in the grid. And you almost don't even notice the grid because it's so ubiquitous. And you can see this natural branching pattern here that underlies the grid. It's like, I think of it almost as like the grid is like the matrix. It's like the control grid that has kept our minds from seeing natural patterns in a way. So this is the superimposed kind of grid of, of land ownership. Land is broken up into grids and right angles, but the waters of the world do not move on right angles and in grids. So it's like as permaculturists actually have to rise up above the programming of the grid and be like, no, what's below the grid? It's the watershed. So nature's property boundaries are the watershed. The watershed is like a tree. We have this ridge lines connecting to high points through saddles. All of the water is flowing through these branches, small streams and creeks coming together into, you know, finally into rivers and finally that river goes and spreads out into the ocean. So it's like a tree, the branches coming together and then it distributes out like in, in the estuary, right? And that's the, that's the core general model in permaculture. It's also the watershed tree. So we can think of the watershed like a tree and it's nature's property boundaries. John Wesley Powell, the explorer of the West, he's the first one who went down the Grand Canyon. He was actually sent by Ulysses S. Grant to go survey the arid West early on. And he came back to Ulysses S. Grant proposing this thing called watershed democracy. I'm just going to read this. It says, Powell recommends organizing the arid lands into watershed commonwealths governed by resident citizens whose interlocking interests create the checks and balances essential to wise stewardship of the land. Here's a direct quote by him. 
that area of land, a bounded hydrologic system within which all living things are inextricably linked by their common watercourse and where, as humans settled, simple logic demanded that they become part of a community. So very early on, it was recommended that we actually divide the Western United States up not by the gridded property boundaries, but by the natural divisions of landscape, the watershed. So as permaculturists, we're not like coming into something new. It's more like the new thing is not having distinction through watershed. And even in our early US history, this was recognized. As you guys probably all have figured out by now, Ulysses S. Grant did not take his advice. And here we sit within the grid. This is sort of like Empire 101. In order to control vast numbers of people, you have to have them being sort of in conformity with each other. You need to be able to issue edicts that apply to every circumstance across the land and all peoples. So getting them to believe a state religion, for instance, is really handy because you know, it's less work for you for one thing, but you know, getting them to all believe in something, it helps to unify the empire socially but it also tends to make it easier to control because everyone's kind of literally on the same page of policy. Well, I mean, the grid itself is about sort of parceling things off and then breaking them down into units, which, which are called lots. Whether it's a feed lot or it's a lot that you're buying to put your house on, they're all interchangeable sort of units of commodity. But within that landscape, as, as we keep saying in city repair, just pointing out like, and as James Howard Kunzler is saying, the thing is laid out as a vast tract of basically road infrastructure where we live in these blocks and then within these zones. So the functions of living and working are separated, but even within the fabric of just living, where all these pathways are intersecting in the grid, I mean, Urban Design 101 is about, basically mandates that we create a place where pathways converge. Our pathways are coming together, our lives are coming together there, we will tend to interact there. But not so much if there isn't any accommodation, much less even seats for sitting in case we might see each other. So across the country, for some crazy reason, you can't find almost any benches in the social environments where we live where we could actually sit and even talk with each other. And that has to do with a, basically an, an impetus to homogenize in order to control. So we're literally missing diversity of place Fortunately, we have people that came along in the 60s and 70s, especially the beloved Kevin Lynch, who wrote the book Image of the City. I mean, he sort of he traveled around the world and distilled into sort of a, a basic formulation what consistently occurs in the greatest, most talkable, walkable, interesting environments in human habitat. So a fabric of place is really all about seeing pathways more as journeys, not just as a conduit from going from A to B. So pathway as journey, pathway as, as place. And then when you're sort of entering something or leaving an environment, there's usually a portal or something that marks the transition. So gateways, gateways and pathways. And then there are sort of sub-centers. I guess I'm giving my interpretation. There are sub-centers or nodes of, of various kinds of activity that would be like, the, you know, think of it like bodily, like organs of a body, like the liver being distinct from the lungs. And then, of course, there will be a heart, which would be the piazza or the great sort of center of the community, the village heart. And then places of memory, monuments, you know, public art, that sort of thing. Except, you know, in our case in the USA, this is the most missing of all of the place archetypes. A thing that tells stories that help you to realize how special some place might be. Where somebody did something amazing or something happened. So in the geography of nowhere, as Kunstler says, there's not this diversity of experience. 
it makes it really easy for us all to just be watching the same TV and coming away with the same impression of ourselves and the world, the same story, and the, the lack of diversity of place that's not encouraging us to interact you know, wouldn't help us to see any different than what we're being told, whether it's sitting in a pew or in front of a TV. Well, let us review our alternatives. Let us rethink what do we want our city to be, and let's reimagine. This is actually the permaculture part now, the reimagine. And then let's go forward together. Design happens on various scales. Each morning we wake up and we design our lives. So whether you think you're a designer or not, you really are. You do it every morning. Are we going to design for our home landscape? Are we going to design for our lives? Are we going to design with our neighborhood? You know, how are we going to respond to the challenges that face us for the future? Most of us, what we're used to, an automobile-dependent high-resource-intensity kind of neighborhoods. This is a brief experience in the human drama. This hasn't gone on for very long. How did this happen? So let's just take a quick look at how suburbia came about in the United States. It is transportation technology. Every incremental increase in capacity in the number of people who have access to that transportation, the speed of that transportation, that had a big effect on urban design. Interestingly, the first American, you could say, modern commuting suburb, meaning between, according to this particular source anyway, between Manhattan and Brooklyn, predates the automobile by 100 years. The American commuting suburb was well into formation a hundred years before the automobile showed up. That's pretty interesting. And, and what that means is you had people living over here, and they took the ferry from Brooklyn over to Manhattan. The ferry had a schedule. And the people who ran the ferry, they were in collaboration with the people who bought the property to subdivide to make a lot of money. This was going on over 200 years ago, and they had sweet deals, they had corruption, they had scams going on, just like now. But it was facilitated by improvements in transportation. And then the omnibus, which was basically an urban stagecoach, had a big impact, then the horse railway, another big impact, then the electric trolley, another big impact, and then of course the automobile. People began living further from where they took care of their needs, where they work, where they shop. We had both the transportation technology, but then we also, during the Great Depression, there was widespread unemployment. So federal housing policy became involved in this. Up to the mid-30s, the federal government had nothing to do with housing policy. That just wasn't something they did. But with the Great Depression, there were a lot of people out of work, so the federal government got into housing policy because they wanted to create jobs for people. And what better way to create jobs than suburban houses? Federal policy had a big part of creating suburbia in the 50s, of course, was the interstate highway system and opening up vast areas near to towns that could be suburbanized and people could go to work by commuting with automobiles. That was a big deal. And it's good land, too, because we only build cities on really nice land. 
good soil. That's what we choose to pave. Land use is, of course, a big part of transportation demand. The further people live away from an urban core, generally the more oil they use. So we said, why is this design focused around cars? And this is a really important thing for us to ask ourselves in our communities, to be able to recognize where design has been organized for cars and where we actually need to park those cars. A more integrated approach to intelligent urban design would be to recognize that urban, suburban, and rural areas each have things they excel at and things they don't. And the deeper reality is people already live in all these places. We have to convert each of them. We need to convert suburban lawns. We need to make cities better for transit. We need to make rural areas more energy independent. And all of these places are all dependent on each other. If you start right out with looking at what you want to have in the end as far as topography on a design site, and even if you don't build it right away, you'll know how to prioritize for the future. You'll know not to put something relatively permanent, like we're going to have a little uh, cob cottage out back. Well, if you try to locate that right away, because you need the space and you don't plan the topography ahead of time, you may end up, oh, that's where we've got to have water running. It's not compatible use. So you start by coming up with the overall topography that you want to have, and then that will influence where you put buildings. If you only design your neighborhood around the existing drainage, you save like two-thirds of the cost yeah. of the infrastructure. That's what they did at Village Homes. Davis, California. They were able to spend the money they saved on sewer pipe on edible landscaping. And the whole thing works better than the rest of the town. When they have floods, they take water from other neighborhoods. Planning is the important thing, and this is the link to permaculture. The city has no planning. Actually, the whole Philippines has no comprehensive planning. And because of that, politicians control the decision-making process, and they wake up one morning, they say, let's make an airport here, let's make an underpass there. There is no professional planning and no consultation, no participation. They tried zoning, but that's also an old concept now, zoning. They want to integrate people. So the suburban areas happen because of zoning, like residential areas. So they have now what we call a bedroom towns where people just go to sleep and then go back to work and it creates the traffic. So the new trend in urban planning is to have people uh, within 10 to 15 minutes of where they want to eat, where they want to work, where they want to do the most of the things. And then connect these little villages with a public transportation system. Cities aren't the challenge, but the solution. The best way and perhaps the only way to absorb increasing global population and affluence is through urbanization. Building cities is our best hope for a sustainable, survivable future because cities are the most efficient means of using limited natural resources to support human life. Other cities now are going for quality of life. And how come we are stuck to this concept of more cars? So he said, do we want more cars or more mobility? Will cars give us more mobility or will just cause us more traffic? And there's what they call now induced traffic. The more roads you have, the more traffic you get. Yeah. We broaden our campaign. It's not about sustainability as a huge panacea dream world, but something that people can experience runners because we say you're a runner you run on the streets you breathe dirty air and you 
get hit by these cars. Why don't we have parks that are interconnected so you can jog with clean air and uh, safely and relax? So by appealing to the different groups, we sort of go behind them and they're the ones in front. So it's a way of broadening our campaign. Instead of having a full-on grid slapped down on a landscape which may be going northwest-southeast rather than east-west-north-south. So if you're riding a bicycle across that, you're doing a lot of senseless up and down. If you apply this pattern to a city, then you, you end up with, okay, the septic systems, you know, the sewage disposal systems are down in the bottom and the reservoirs are up relatively high and you have these roads which follow very mild slopes which connect things very well and you've got systems of green belt and parks that fit the pattern really nicely and it's just a very nice landscape it would be very pleasant to live in such a city we've been using the term microclimate to think about diversity of place and also of function I mean, just as a microclimate allows special things to happen, every one of the kinds of different spaces that we go to in our ordinary daily life is configured in some way. It has certain amenities. Maybe it's a workshop and you need a workbench and you've got all the tools there and you've got some natural light and it's made to be really a conducive, enjoyable space to work. In a way, that's like a microclimate and it is conducive for the activities that it's set up for. And we sort of see this on a daily basis as we go from space to space, leaving where we live to go do these functions more as jobs than as culture. But when we localize these things, they start to become, I mean, you've seen this in eco-villages where spaces just unfold and they're all kind of in proximity. And the life you're living is woven into the work that you're doing and therefore a whole lot more play happens. And then these, the sort of stacking of social benefits starts to occur because you're knowing, you're building trust, you're knowing each other's story, you're valuing each, each other more, and your relationships take on literally more dimensions than you would normally have if you're just living with some people and working with other people. You know, every time something like that happens and it's sitting there, it's a hand-wrought lovely thing, it suddenly is speaking place in this landscape where everything is generated as a commodity. It's the most powerful thing and everything else is in relation to it. It's the thing that's shining, and you're increasing the quality of mm -hmm. the place. Two-thirds of new homes built in 2011 had a porch, a trend that has been on a steady rise for almost 10 years, according to a census survey of construction. The rise in the number of new homes with porches hints at a shift in the way more Americans want to live in smaller houses and dense neighborhoods that promote walking and social interaction. It's because it's building community. It's going back to the old idea that you sit on your front porch and people walk by on the sidewalk or ride their bike by and you build community. People are craving that sense of community. They want to be part of something. They want to know their neighbors or they're maybe seeing the need to know their neighbors. I think that's what's driving it and it's been driving it for quite some time. There's an architect who started this movement probably 15, 20 years ago called New Urbanism. And it's been growing advanced or innovative developers around the country 
those who really want to do the right thing are talking to him or having him come and design their subdivisions. And they're designing these with Main Street environments where people can live in that community and shop and have daycare and banks and they're shopping and work in a Main Street environment. It's really going back to the way we used to live and all the advantages that we've gone away from. But we're going back to that same idea, to look at that and all the advantages that lifestyle has and then say, you know, we lost that, we went off track, and we need to get back to it. The Transition Town movement is about preparing now for the challenges ahead so that we're not suddenly surprised and have to deal with these dramatic changes as they're happening. And cities have limited financial resources and that's probably only going to increase in the future. So the big questions are is how are we going to deal with this situation when not only do we have all the challenges I just mentioned, but the cities and communities, towns, wherever we're living, are going to have fewer and fewer resources to make the infrastructure changes that we're going to need to live in this brave new world. Supporters of the endless growth paradigm suggest that economic growth will take care of poverty. But if growth is ending due to resource constraints, then pressure for a different economic paradigm to increase sustainability will be even more difficult. How do we share a smaller pie more equitably? How do we build lifeboats that allow everyone to survive? In the 1990s, there was a project in Arizona called Biosphere, which was designing a domed city that would be self-sufficient. And it didn't work because the biosphere needs to be 8,000 miles in diameter. That's the only system that really works. And we're trying to make it not work anymore. So the billionaires are not going to be able to hide in a bunker while the rest of us die. But the billionaires aren't going to make it if we don't. And we're probably not going to make it if the billionaires don't. Although they might have to share their resources a bit. We're all in the same boat. There's no such thing as waste Only stuff in the wrong place No, there's no such thing as waste Misusing water's a disgrace Extra environmentalist stock tips Thanks to the recent foreclosures in many people's houses, cardboard manufacturers have been out of control. Roll down to your local stock exchange and pick up some cardboard manufacturer stocks because that's the material of the future. This is a representative from your U.S. government reminding you to never, ever look at the exchange rate for the U.S. dollar to bitcoins. Please, just don't do it. There's no need for you ever to look at that. I'm not even going to tell you any websites that you could do that on because you just don't ever need to. Thank you. 
So we're all in the same boat as the billionaires, and we need the billionaires too. What do you guys think about that? That's I don't know. I could see a lot of people having some issues with that. <laughs> um, what do you guys think about that? Maybe the billionaires need to share a little bit of their resources with us too? I, I think that it's interesting to observe that in our current economic system, billionaires are the ones that are holding great power and control. So I really think that wealthy individuals are the people that most need to learn these permaculture principles to really understand that the results of their decisions happen within this greater context of the living systems in which we are all a part. Their wealth and power, in the end, is really based upon social agreements that society chooses to recognize and uphold. It, it seems obvious to me that as this crisis unfolds, that they're going to recognize their one true responsibility, and indeed their only true security, is going to be creating a better world, not only for themselves, but for their greater community. And that's exactly right, Kevin. And it's, it's very interesting to think about billionaires as being separate from our society, as being, you know, at the top pinnacle of our society as it exists now. But in reality, that top class is very, very much supported by the lower classes. And it, within this kind of framework, you have to view the whole ecosystem of our planet that we are all connected, that we are all very much the same in so many different ways, and that when you step back from it, the billionaire and the man living under the overpass are basically the same. Are they really? Because one idea I came across recently is it's almost like the billionaire and the man living under the overpass are really like different species because you think about the energy and the power that they command and it really is almost like two different species in some ways. But I also think that the billionaires and the global elite are very much trapped by the system and their logic as well. If you think about the way our current system is structured, we need to have a rate of return that's much higher than that at which nature can deliver, or if we were to create a food forest on a patch of land. So the challenge is that to generate that 7 or 8 or 9% return that we need to pay off all the debt that's in the system, to pay off the pensions for everybody in the long run, we have to dig into the natural capital that exists on the planet even further and go deeper in the ground and deeper in the ocean to mine the oil and the resources and the non-renewable resources. What we're looking at with permaculture in not just the social segment that we had today, but also in the built environment segment, is building aspects of society that can really operate at that rate of return that nature can generate. As we begin this transition away from the age of non-renewable resources into the solar age, where we actually live within the Earth's solar budget, the annual income that the Earth can provide us, I think we're going to experience much more than a mere shift in the type and amount of energy that we use. The transition to this solar age isn't going to happen easily. And that's because our society has been designed to maximize energy flow. I, I think the dawning of a new energy environment is going to transform our values, our culture, our economic, and our political institutions, including our day-to-day our -day lives.
What kind of information have you gleaned from these lectures? What stuck out in your mind as the most important, you know, maybe top three things about what you learned on this project? I think that one of the big takeaways that I learned about permaculture was really reiterated in the one straw revolution. That the ultimate goal of farming isn't the growing of crops, but the cultivation and perfection of human beings. We've just recently figured out how to create holistically regenerative systems that will last many lifetimes. And we can discover new ways to meet our needs as we begin regenerating the earth and moving away from the existing systems that are based on scarcity and competition. It's through permaculture that we learn the foundational operating principles of nature. And with feedback from the garden, we can learn what we need to know so that we can embody these principles in economics, in our social systems, and in our environments, as well as our edible landscapes. So, Kevin, you recorded all of these talks at the Permaculture Convergence, and you're going to be posting a number of those after the next episode, right? That's correct. Yeah, so it's going to make for a really fantastic library if you want to learn about all the different angles on permaculture, not just the ways of doing agriculture and the ways that permaculture can deal with climate change and energy depletion, but also the social aspects as we talked about today. Thanks for joining us today, Kevin. My pleasure. Yeah, and thanks for being a correspondent for us and and gleaning all this amazing material. And you'll be back with us on our next episode in order to talk more about the solutions that permaculture can provide. I rescued piles of wasted oil from the back of restaurants. I'd be a fool if I bought my fuel when there's oil nobody wants. No such thing as waste. Oh, no. Only stuff in the wrong place. Yeah. I said there's no such thing as waste. And so thanks to Kevin for going down to the Pacific Northwest Permaculture Convergence and recording all these segments. And as we mentioned earlier in the episode, he is coming back for episode number 58 to play a few interviews from that conference. And I think that the interesting thing about permaculture in looking at our challenges today is our world is changing so fast. And it may seem like to many of us that, you know, the American way of life is still plugging along and the consumer economy still exists. And, you know, that Walmart exists down the street where maybe it always has. But things really are changing if you take a bit more of a long time perspective. And I was just looking at the Long Now Foundation website, and they had a post on there on February 7th on the first five-year decline in U.S. vehicle miles traveled since World War II. And Daniel K. Simon, who believes that the effects of peak oil were going to set in, back in 2005, he made a bet with Glenn Raphael about $400, each put in $200. And Daniel Simon said that over the next five years, that vehicle miles would not increase. And he won the bet because vehicle miles actually haven't increased. They've actually shrunk. It used to be back in 2005 that there were over 3 trillion vehicle miles traveled per year. Now there's only 2.98 trillion. So it's not a big decrease, things are changing, but they're not growing. And that is a a big change for U.S. society. 
So you, you're talking about vehicle miles being the miles traveled on a vehicle or miles traveled overall for all vehicles? Miles overall traveled for all vehicles in the United States. And that number has stayed the same and even gone down. That's very yeah. interesting. I know. And if you can pull it up on Google and actually look at this. And like back in 1945, it was 250.173 billion miles. And it's just like the hockey stick graph and blows up. And now it's up at $3 trillion in 2007, for which it has decreased. That's very interesting because you would think that more cars have been, you know, add to the road system and more people will be driving. You would think there would be a lot more miles nowadays. But that's very interesting that that number has actually gone down. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to highlight and how fast our world is changing is applications to law school hit a 30-year low this year. And actually what's happening is that because of the diminished employment opportunities for law school, people just aren't applying as much anymore and people can't afford to go. And there's actually a follow-up report to this one that said that now law schools are going to have to lay off faculty and uh, shrink dramatically and contract, as we spoke about with Jim Kunstler last time, the contraction of higher ed, because the students aren't showing up. Definitely, definitely. And I actually was watching a, a news report on CNN yesterday where they were talking about people going to a school and racking up this huge amount of debt and how it's not really becoming a feasible option anymore for, for students graduating high school looking for that higher education. You know, there's, there's that phrase, there's a, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. But when you're going into huge amounts of debt and there's amazing options now available every day through this Internet connected technology, it makes a little bit more sense now to go to a two year community college and then maybe transfer to a, a more uh, prestigious school or maybe not even go to school. Maybe you go and get education in a place that gives you skills that you can use in a real world uh, setting. And maybe that's the best way to do it. Something I think they're going to be bringing back real soon is the apprenticeship. Yeah, if there's ever a rebirth of the guild structure, the people who are practicing permaculture now will be the guild leaders for the future permaculture apprentices uh, of the future, for the future education uh, system. And one of the things that's impacting education is uh, sequestration in the U.S. Seth, are people freaking out there? You know, I've spoken to some people in Canada who understand what's going on. Some people aren't following it too closely. What's happening? Is everything going to chaos? Tell me about sequestration. Well, sequestration right now, if everyone has not kept up on it, it's really what it's going to be doing is going to be shutting down our government system. There's a lot of government workers who are going to be actively going on furloughs, which means they're not going to be paid to come to work. And that means a lot of our government systems and services that we come to expect every day, things like the mail or the garbage, things like those municipal systems that you come to expect on a regular basis are not going to be there anymore. I actually talked to somebody who works for the government and she's actually looking forward to her furlough days because she's going to take them as guilt-free vacation days and she's going to go off on a trip. I guess that's one way of looking at it. Another way is people are not going to be able to get their services and the DMV line is going to be that much longer. Yeah, it's interesting. We've spoken about work-less policies before on our show with Conrad Schmidt all the way back in episode four of the British Columbia Work-Less Party, but also recently in our degrowth episode with Juliette Shore, and she's been advocating work-less and work-time reduction policies for a very long time. And it looks like they're actually starting to get implemented 
but not in the way that maybe a lot of people thought. As the U.S. government's bankruptcy becomes more and more of an issue, not only is it going to impact education and funding of higher ed, but it's also going to impact uh, what people do with their lives. And uh, I don't know, what are what are people going to do with their lives? Maybe some permaculture projects. <laughs> Maybe some permaculture projects, but definitely it's going to rearrange people's priorities. And I think that is the biggest point that we really should think about is that jobs are right now the number one priority in so many people's lives. And when you start taking that away from people or you start making that no longer the number one priority in their lives, people shift different things and they start re-examining their priorities. You know, that shift can be really painful and moving away from that thing that you have thought you should do for your entire life and has been the defining characteristic of your personality for so many years and making that not as important can really lead to some drifting and some some depression. So those are some things we should think about as we move into these sequestration furlough world that we're moving towards. Yeah, you know, the United States has been kicking the can down the road for so long, but it looks like the U.S. has run out of road to kick it down, and austerity is actually hitting in the in the way that it has been in Europe. And who knows how long it'll take for the United States to look like Spain. It could take a year or four years or eight years. It's such a different animal that it could transform completely differently. But as we've been talking about on our show for so many years, you know, it's coming down the pipeline and it's starting to arrive and people are starting to see it impact their lives. And, you know, it's going to impact every aspect of our society. And so it's interesting to see the reactions that are happening in the United States. But for people who have been taking their money and putting it towards our work and our vocation here on The Extra Environmentalist. We're extremely grateful for some very generous donations that we've received over the last month from John in Chicago, Illinois, who threw us some money. And we were so grateful for that, John. Thank you. Thank you so much, John, for that donation. It was really nice of you. Uh, we also heard from Jack, who was nice enough to send in a really generous donation. He didn't include a place of origin, so we're just going to say, Jack, from the Newosphere, thank you so much for sending in your generous, generous gift. Yeah, so I was down in Portland recently, took the Amtrak Cascades line down there. Beautiful train ride. I really love that line and so glad to be a citizen of Cascadia. I saw the Cascadia flag flying out there in the river right next to Portland. And it was so great to meet up with James and Luke and some of their friends who work with permaculture there in the city right off the campus of Portland State University. And looking forward to meeting more of our listeners as we move around, as we travel around for various opportunities. I know that we heard from a few listeners in San Francisco and Portland who wanted to meet up and didn't get a chance to. So don't worry, we'll be back in those areas soon. I am headed out to Pittsburgh in May for a conference that I'm doing with my graduate program here at UBC. And then I'm going to be training through the state of North Carolina to visit you, Seth, and also back to to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I'm from, and also to New York in July. So that's what this summer is looking like for me. So if you are in Pittsburgh or New York and want to meet up while I'm out there in May or July, just let me know. And you, Seth, are going down to Jacksonville with Chris, our web genie, to work on our OneSpark presentation. Tell us a little bit about OneSpark. That's absolutely correct, Justin. OneSpark is this cloud funding festival where people all around the world gather together in Jacksonville, Florida to 
put their ideas on display. And there's actually a $250,000 pot of money that just is going to be handed out to the percentages of people who get the votes. So if you, you get 10% of the vote, you get 10% of the $250,000. There's also going to be a lot of people that are just going to be walking around donating money. And we're really going to be able to put the extra environmentalist ideas on display, kind of put it out there, see what people are thinking about, how we're ranking among the different ideas of the world, and, you know, get some networking opportunities. So if you are in Jacksonville, Florida, you want to meet up with the extra environmentalist, you want to vote for the extra environmentalist in the One Spark competition we would love to have your vote because that any vote that you give to us is going to help us get a part of that huge pie of money so that we can bring you even better episodes, bring you even better quality production stuff, if it's even possible to think it. But So we will be in Jacksonville the 17th through the 21st of April. So if you're in Jacksonville during those times, you're going to be seeing that One Spark stuff all over town and you will definitely need to come check out the Extra Environmentalist booth Come talk to me. Come talk to Chris. We would love to hear from you. Yeah, and our goal there, I won't be going, but you and and Chris will be going, Seth. And our goal there is to take some of that $250,000 in crowdfunding and funnel a little bit of it towards our show so that way we can produce some more intensive video series. And that's all I'll say about our plans for more intensive video series at the moment. But we've definitely got some plans. There's some great stuff coming. Yeah. Great stuff coming. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I wanted to say a huge shout out to everybody, to John and Jack who donated to us. If you want to throw some money into our show, we really appreciate your donations for helping to turn us into a reputable media organization of the future, bringing the story of this transformation of the human system that recognizes environmental problems and social problems into our economic paradigm. And if you want to contribute to that, how can people do that, Seth? People can contribute to the Extra Environmentalist by checking out our website. There's a link on the side that says donate. And you can click right there, send us as much money as you feel like you need to send us. You know, we take checks up to a million dollars. So that's that's totally fine. And also remember that it is a tax deductible donation. So anything you send our way can be deducted off of your taxes. You don't have to worry about that money being you know taken by the government because you're, you're going to be giving it to us. You can also donate by sending us a paper check if you're into that kind of thing. Just send us an email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com and we'll send you an address that you can drop off that paper check. That's right. With the currency war going on in the world right now, you never know who's going to win first by devaluing their currency. So while your money still does something, why not put it into producing some videos and some media that will be around as long as we have computers to run them on. And people can also call us and leave us a voicemail. How can they do that, Seth? People can leave us a voicemail message by calling into our toll-free voicemail box, which exists on the internet. Day or night, you can call in, leave us a voicemail. And that would be at plus one for the United States, 919-701-9872. And those last four digits are actually XTRA. So on your touchtone telephone dial, 919-701-XTRA. And leave us a fantastic voice message, which we would love to play on the show because Justin and I talking gets a little bit boring. And having our fantastic listeners out there add to the show makes it that much better. And we do love hearing your stories and dispatches. And we'd love to hear how sequestration is affecting you in the U.S. or how austerity is affecting you 
around the world. Thanks to everybody who's been posting on our Facebook wall, sending us stories, sending us emails, sending us links. We do look at all those and we do read all of them. I am in the middle of planning a conference here at UBC, the New Economy Summit, with many of the people who you've heard on our show and many of the people who you will be hearing on the show. Two intensive days, April 5th and 6th, to talk about building a new economic paradigm on the campus of University of British Columbia. And so it'd be great to meet some of our listeners at that. But that conference is taking up a lot of my time. And so it slowed down our release schedule and it slowed down my ability to reply to emails. So I'll be catching up on that soon now that a lot of the initial planning work is out of the way. But it's going to be slow going up until that summit in April 5th and 6th. Seth is coming up here for that and we're going to try to live stream as as much of that as possible. But whatever we can't, we are going to be able to show it in high quality video production. Isn't that right, Seth? Yeah, it's absolutely right, Justin. I will be in Vancouver during that conference as well, shooting the video, streaming it live to the internet so that everybody can get in on the action, even if they're not in at the conference. But, you know, being at the conference is so much better because you get to see the in-person-ness. There's not a lot of networking opportunities. But yeah, if you mean, are not able to make it, we'll have it for you, at least archived. Exactly. And so, like I was saying about email, I'll be catching up on email more in the near future. But one really cool email that we got from Kevin was about a whole new dimension to the origin of the term extra-environmentalist. Kevin F. wrote in to say that he's a huge fan of the podcast and he really enjoys their interviews, but he wanted to let us know about the true origin of the term extra-environmentalist. And so he says that the actual origin of the term extra-environmentalist comes from Howard Gossage, the Socrates of San Francisco, madman-era advertising innovator who was crucial to the shift in advertising during the 60s towards nonconformity, hipness, self-criticism, etc., And so he introduced Marshall McLuhan into the mainstream media and was one of the first in environmental advertising with the Sierra Club and Friends of the Earth. And so he wrote a book in 1967, Is There Any Hope for Advertising?, in which he describes the ideal 1960s ad man as someone who regards advertising as an outsider or stranger, an ad man whose mind isn't cluttered up with a lot of those rules, policy, and other accumulated impedimentia that often pass for experience, someone who is unable to see things in a normal fashion. So what he was saying is the extra environmentalist means the new 60s era ad man who's estranged from the conformities of the 50s style advertising and instead pushes for the edgy and hip new ads that were in demand. So, yeah, I thought it was really interesting that Kevin brought that up because we do so many fake commercials and advertisements on our show. We've kind of been channeling in Howard Gossage's influence without even knowing it. That's exactly right. It's fantastic that we were able to channel that inner sales madman kind of guy into our extra environmentalist show with all the commercials that we do without even knowing it. But we must have been finding some kind of energy and putting it in there. Yeah, so we've been able to expand on Howard's initial definition of the idea, but at least now Dennis McKenna helped trace it back from Terrence to McLuhan, and now we've traced it thanks to Kevin's help from McLuhan to Gossage. So um, that's, that's <laughs> where will it cool. go next? Nobody knows. So be sure to check out our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash xenvironmental. 
find out the latest on our personal Twitter accounts as well and get ready to check out so much new content coming from the New Economy Summit April 4th, 5th, and 6th. I left out the 4th earlier here on the campus of University of British Columbia. Thanks to all of you for listening to our permaculture episode and learning more about permaculture. More is coming on our next episode. And so we'll look forward to telling you about it then. Exactly. Remember to tell all your friends about the Extra Environmentalist. That is the best way to share the show to make sure the message goes farther is just to take an episode, send it to your friends, say, listen to this stuff. It will blow your mind. Get out there, build yourself a food forest, and remember to bake yourself a tuna noodle casserole. Now I get my things out of garbage bins and I compost every crumb. I save my seeds and eat my weeds and feed the leftovers to your mum. Hey, Seth and Justin, this is Chris. Just wanted to say hi, congratulate you on another wonderful episode. Really like listening to Duncan and Jim Kunstler. I'm recording this with the SoundCloud app on an iPad, and it seems to be uh, pretty good, pretty easy. One thing I found interesting about the interview with Jim is his absolute uh, disregard for technology, the future of technology. And I, I think he's talking more about high technology. I mean, if you look at human history... We haven't always had high technology, but we've always had technology, and it's always progressed, and it's, for the most part, been a positive development. Perhaps the technologies that'll survive will just not be the technologies that feed the consumer society or the capitalist growth model. Perhaps we'll start to focus on the really important technologies, the ones that lead to quality of life and improvement of the human condition. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. If we were to restore the vast areas of the planet where we humans have degraded the soils, just think what an impact we would have in taking carbon out of the atmosphere. As much as a quarter of the world's land mass has been degraded, and we've only just begun to recognize the real value of natural capital. Surely investing in the recovery of damaged environments is a cost-effective way of solving many of the problems we face today. The source of wealth is the functional ecosystems. The products and services that we derive from those are derivatives. It's impossible for the derivatives to be more valuable than the source. And yet, in our economy now, as it stands, the products and services have monetary values. But the source, the functional ecosystems, are zero. So this cannot be true. It, it's false. So we've created a global institution of economic institutions and economic theory based on a flaw in logic. So if we carry that flaw in logic from generation to generation, we compound the mistake. If we continue the way we're going, then we're going to reach a crisis point where it's impossible to feed everyone. And at that point, then all bets will be off because you'll have millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people who are migrating to survive. Now, in, if you're in the first world and you think, well, that's okay, it's not me, it's them. 
Well, this isn't going to save you. You, you. you can't shoot them down. There are too many. There are seven billion people on the earth and we're adding a billion people every 12 years. It's not going to be possible to suppress humanity when they can't survive. They won't go gently into that good night. On the next Extra Environmentalist, we talk about permaculture techniques and wrap up our permaculture convergence coverage. Internationally, uh, Cuba is kind of by default an incredible permacultural observation. Uh, in that they are having to use natural resources. They're not able to buy, they're, they're in a situation of having to create. Um, South Africa is in a similar situation. The, the areas that seem to be compromised by lack of um, either economy or resource um, are naturally evolving a lot of really um, effective permacultural examples. We have an enormous industry for taking care of lawns, which are not very edible. And lawns come from Europe, where to have a large lawn manicured showed that you were incredibly wealthy, you were so rich, you did not have to grow food around your house. It was a sign of the aristocracy. And now it's a middle class uh, practice. And people don't even think twice about it. The energy we dedicate towards lawns is energy we could dedicate toward food. And this is starting to shift in the US in the last couple of years, the garden industry has had record years of people being interested in growing some food. People are, certainly not everybody, but a fresh tomato from your garden tastes a lot better than one that was grown two months ago in Florida and preserved and shipped across time zones. Those are not very tasty. And that's not a political opinion. Pretty much everybody will agree with that. But the fast food industry is orders of magnitude bigger than the permaculture world. And it's starting to shift, but at the rate things are going, the oil will be gone before we make the shift completely. And to relocalize food production, to prepare for a lower energy standard of living, one that is not based on collapse, but on cooperation, we will need some fossil fuel to do that. So we should use the rest of the fossil fuel wisely to facilitate that relocalization, rather than burn it all up on more highways and Walmarts and McDonald's.
It's a bird! It's a plane! No wait, it's helicopter Ben Bernanke throwing money down! No wait! It's Superman? No! It's a drone! A drone? That's right, Charlie. Now you can own your very own drone. Every child should own a drone. Wow, thanks, Dad. My own model drone kit. I can't wait to fly it around. Based on military cutbacks in Afghanistan, Halliburton has been able to open up its military drone program to the people in the United States. Now you can own your very own drone for the low, low price of $2 million. $2 million? Wow, that's only most of the debt that my parents owe on their credit cards. Give Johnny the gift that he's always wanted and allow him to get retribution on those bullies at school. All right, son. Now that you've got your own model drone kit, you can train for a real job in the military, flying those things. I keep reading in Time Magazine how it's one of the biggest growth industries, and our local college just opened up a drone flight training program. Why play video games when you can fly your very own drone? Using satellites all over the world, you can fly your drone anywhere and bomb whoever you like. It's gonna be the hottest thing this Christmas! So get out there and buy your drone now while the prices are hot. If your postal service ever goes on strike, we know something else that can strike faster. The drones. Lucky Strike drones are the way to go. We keep the hits coming. Brought to you by Lucky Strike Drones, the drone company that really gets you going.